Cindy, it's such a joy to have partnered with you through all these years and to see you here today. Thank you for sharing with us. My name is David Sunday. I'm voluntary pastor here on the pastoral team, and I'm also serving as president of Word Partners, uh, the organization that Cindy talked about. And today, it's my joy to preach the Word, and we're not in a series today. We're in between a series between Acts, which ended last week, and Revelation, which will be starting soon here in the fall. So we're going to turn to the book of the Bible that I'm in morning and evening. It's the regular pattern of my life to pray through the Psalms each month, and I love this book, book of Psalms. Please turn there to Psalm 17, because this is where we find God's Word given to God's king and to God's people so that we can pray these words back to him. A lot of times we don't know how to express what's going on in our hearts, in our lives. We need help from the Holy Spirit to know how to pray. That's what the book of Psalms is. It's God's word given to God's king and his people so that we can pray these words back to him. So let's ask the Lord Jesus to teach us to pray as we listen to Psalm 17 this morning, a prayer of David. Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. Concerning what people do, by the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love, Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. They are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied and they leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. Thanks be to God for his living word. Well, I was going through a pretty rough season in my life many, many years ago when my decisions were being misunderstood, my motives were being questioned, accusations were swirling, and there wasn't a thing I could do to set the record straight. You've been there too, haven't you? You know what it's like to be misunderstood, to be told you're wrong and have no way to prove you're right? Have you ever been ambushed by a false accusation? Had a narrative spread about you that was casting you in a negative light? Maybe it's happened to you personally, or to your family, or to your church, or to an organization that you're a part of. 
And everything within you wants to defend yourself. You want to defend the group you're a part of. But it's one's person's, one person's word against another's. There's no way you can prove you are right without tearing someone else down. And when you resort to that kind of behavior, you end up demeaning yourself in the process. So can you feel the, the tension rising in your heart? What do you do when you're falsely accused? Do you just suck it up and let your accuser think they're right? Or as one put, woman put it, do you let your anger take root and grow into a tree of resentment that produces a harvest of bitterness? I remember talking to my friend, Mike, about what I was going through and the complex situation I was in and how I was feeling misunderstood and maligned. And he pointed me to a prayer from the early church father, Augustine, which says, O oh Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Oh, Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. In my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers quotes Augustine, and he says these words, Such need for constant vindication destroys our soul's faith in God. Don't say, I must explain myself, or I must get people to understand our Lord never explained anything. He left the misunderstandings or misconceptions of others to correct themselves. It's going to happen to every one of us. Every one of us is going to be misunderstood and falsely accused by others. And we're all going to need to learn to pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. If you're a Christian, the experience of accusation goes even deeper than what human tongues can say about you. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the serpent, Satan, has been int intending to destroy the offspring of the woman who would come and crush his head. And he continues that battle today against everyone who's connected to Jesus. In Revelation 12, verse 10, he is called the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan is an accuser. So it's not surprising that in Psalm 17, King David, who stands as the representative head of God's people is crying out to the Lord in the face of accusation and slander and persecution from the enemies of God. And as we listen into God's chosen king pouring out his heart to God to vindicate him against his accusers, we can learn how we can pray, how we should pray when we're going through experiences of being misunderstood or maligned, whether it's from human beings or from the accusations of Satan himself. So this psalm is structured around three urgent requests. The first begins in verse 1, a request for vindication. Then in verse 6, a request for protection. And finally, in verse 13, a request for the defeat of the king's enemies. And these three requests show us how we can find freedom from the lust of vindicating ourselves when we're facing unjust treatment. Verses 1 through 5, 
a request for vindication. Now, as I read these words in verses 1 through 5, it's striking to me how confident King David is in the righteousness of his cause. He knows that God looks on the heart of the prayer, not just on the content of his prayer. And when we come before the Lord, we need to examine our requests. Is what I'm asking God to do for me unfair to someone else? Would God have to violate his own law to answer my request? Is my prayer coming from a jealous, jealous heart or a selfish heart? Am I asking God to help me sin? Can I say with David in verse 1, Lord, hear a just cause when I'm praying. And David strengthens this request by declaring in verse 1 that his lips are free from deceit. He's not using cheaply perfumed words to mask a putrid heart. One commentator writes, he is not redefining righteousness, looking for legal loopholes, misrepresenting his opponents, or oppressing those who are in the right. He speaks the truth in honesty. In verse 2, he is seeking vindication from God who sees what is right. He's not looking for vigilante justice. He's not asking for any laws to be broken or for justice to be disregarded. He is appealing to the judge of all the earth to thoroughly review the evidence and to do what is right. In fact, David has submitted his own life to the scrutiny of the all-seeing eye of God. And he is sure that in this case, he has passed through God's 363-degree examination of him unscathed. Look at verse 3. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. Nighttime is the time when we're most vulnerable to lapses in judgment. Nighttime is the time when we're most vulnerable to succumbing to sin. But David has survived the testing of the night. He says, you have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. In other words, David is confident here that God has searched him and God has found no skeletons in his closet, no slurs in his speech, no inconsistency between his walk and his talk. Look at verses 4 and 5. Concerning what people do, the NIV suggests here that he's talking about people's attempts to bribe the king. He says, by the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. And as you read this psalm surrounding this, you can see verbal connections to preceding psalms. For instance, in Psalm 15, it begins, Lord, who shall dwell in your tent? Who shall live on your holy hill? And it talks about a person of integrity, the one whose inner life and outer life are all integrated around God's instruction. This is the one who will never be shaken in Psalm 15. And then in Psalm 16, David flees to the Lord for refuge, and he prays to the God who preserves him. 
And he praises God for the counsel of his word. He says, even at night, when my thoughts trouble me, God counsels me. And then he describes this way of life in verse 8. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And then in Psalm 18, David gives praise to God for delivering him from his enemies. A deliverance in which he says in verse 36, God gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. So clearly the king who's writing these psalms does not attribute his righteousness and his integrity to his own doing. He knows it's the grace of God whose word has kept him from the ways of violent men. It's the salvation of God that has delivered him from the slippery slopes of evil. That's what makes him confident to cry out to God for vindication in this situation. He he has experienced God's mercy in saving him and sanctifying him and sustaining him. David is not putting his confidence in his own self-righteousness here. It's God's right, God's work in his life that has given him this integrity. As you read a psalm like Psalm 17, and there's others like this, it should always raise a question in our minds. When we hear David kind of insisting on his own innocence, his own righteousness, you've got to ask, how can the same king who wrote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 repenting of the sins of, idolat- of, of adultery and murder and deceit, how can that same king claim here in Psalm 17 to be innocent? That, that's the question we should ask when we read these kinds of psalms. And the answer, I think, is twofold. First, King David is claiming a relative righteousness in a particular conflict here. He's not claiming sinless perfection. The historical circumstances of this Psalm 17 are not named, but its proximity to Psalm 18 suggests that David is praying Psalm 17 in the midst of the murderous pursuit of King Saul. And as you read 1 Samuel, you'll see in the narrative of 1 Samuel that throughout that pursuit of King Saul, King David was waiting for God to establish him as king. And David refused to take matters into his own hands. And David did walk in integrity before God and in respect to King Saul. He, he, in this example, entrusts, he's like Jesus, King Jesus, who did not commit sin, Peter says, and no deceit was found in his mouth, When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In that situation, King David, before he became anointed as king, demonstrated integrity, a relative righteousness. And I think this category is important for us when we are dealing with accusations against us or against other people. Sometimes it can sound really humble on the surface when, when you're looking at people who, who are going through really, really rough times and, and they're being accused of stuff. It can sound humble to say, well, we're all, we're all sinners. There's always sin on both sides. But that kind of thinking can be really misguided. Ray Ortland warns that there, 
when we use that slogan, there's always sin on both sides, he says real wrongs can lie undisturbed, unconfronted, unrelieved, which helps no one, and it ends up injuring everyone involved. A glib slogan like, well, there's enough guilt here to go around, as if that settled anything, might sound humble, but it inadvertently protects predatory people. If everyone's responsible, no one's responsible. And then bad people end up walking away from their successful injustice with a smirk on their faces, strengthened to repeat their opposition to the gospel and to Christ himself. It's better for us to acknowledge that in life, in this fallen world, sometimes people are not at all guilty of the accusations that are hurled against them. Sometimes people are innocent victims of unjust suffering. And we've got to make this, we've got to make space for this category of relative righteousness. That frees a victim of oppression to cry out to God with a boldness like David does in this psalm. Because God is the God who hides people in his presence from accusing tongues, it says in Psalm 31:20. So make space for this category of relative righteousness. In this case, in David's life, he was right. He was right. But the second way to answer how David can speak so confidently of his innocence is to remember that David is speaking prophetically as a prophet, as God's anointed king. And he's looking forward to a greater son of David who not only relatively, but perfectly fulfills all righteousness. And Jesus' righteousness is comprehensive. Jesus' righteousness is unblemished. There's no need to qualify any of the claims of this psalm when you're applying it to King Jesus and putting it on his lips. So in our case, when we're going through situations like David's going through and like what, what happens to me, when I'm going through hard conflicts and things, I'm never quite sure of my own motives. I don't know about you, but I'm always questioning my motives. Always praying, search me, oh God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. I'm never quite sure if I'm right or wrong. I usually think I've probably got some mixed motives. But I know that Jesus is perfect. And when I come before God, I can plead with God on the behalf on behalf of the righteousness of my advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am clothed in his righteousness, and I am faultless to stand before God in Christ. I think that's what it means to pray in Jesus name. It means to offer our prayers to God the Father as those who are trusting in the merits of his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And it means to believe that because I'm united to Christ, the father can now receive me as his beloved child and he can be pleased with me as well. So this first request, this prayer for vindication, it shows us that we can be delivered from the lust of vindicating ourselves when we remember that before God, we are clothed in the righteousness of 
his son, Jesus Christ. And we stand faultless before the throne of grace so we can come before God and trust him ultimately to vindicate us in the face of the enemy and all the enemy's accusations against us. And that brings us to the second request. This second request shows us that we can find freedom from the lust of self-vindication when we remember God's power to protect us from all the harm any accuser could ever bring against us. Verses 6 through 12 are a request for protection. Look at verse 6. David declares his confidence that the Lord will answer him. I love it. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Isn't that the way we should approach God in prayer? With confidence that he hears us, that he will answer us. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. He's not doubting, but believing that his prayer will be answered. It reminded me of a number of years ago when Nate, my son, was 14 years old and and his mom, my wife, was about to go in for her surgery to remove her lung. And I went into Nate's room and I asked him, son, how are you doing? And he answered me and said, dad, how are you doing? And I thought that was so mature of him to care about me. And I, I told him, this is really hard right now. And kind of described the turmoil my own heart was in. And Nate answered, he said, I'm confident everything's going to be okay, dad. And the reason he was confident was because we had prayed to God. And he said, I know God hears us. And he's either going to bring mom safely through the surgery or he's going to bring her home to Jesus. And either way, everything's going to be okay. That was an example to me of trusting in God's power to protect us. Trusting that God is with us in his steadfast love. And we've seen the Lord do verse 7 for us in our lives again and again. He displays the wonders of his faithful love. He wondrously shows his steadfast love to those who take refuge in him. And what King David has in mind in verse 7 is back in Exodus 15 when the children of Israel were at the edge of the Red Sea and God had brought them safely over to the other side and, and Pharaoh and his army were drowned in the depths of the sea and Moses prayed, O oh Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? And David's saying, God, do that for us again and again. Wondrously show your steadfast love. And then in verse 8, David makes another reference back to Moses. This time it's Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 through 12 where Moses reflects on how God cares for his people. One of the things Moses says is that he guards them as the apple of his eye. And then he goes on to talk about how God is like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. That's the kind of God we have. He protects his people. And so David prays to the Lord in verse 8, asking him to protect him like that. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And the eye is that, that part of our body that we protect most instinctively. God gave us eyelids that automatically in a, in a millisecond shut 
Whenever it seems like something's coming at them, we just shut our eyes or we cover our eyes. This is what I hate about going to the ophthalmologist. Uh, they, 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 they put that saline solution in your eyes to dilate them, and, and they're already stinging. And, and then they put you in front of that machine, and they tell you, don't worry, we're just going to shoot some puffs of air into your eye and sit still. Don't flinch. And I'm always like trying to brace myself. And every time they, they shoot that puff of air into my eyes, I'm like, oh, it, it, you automatically protect the pupil of your eye. And that's how God feels about his people. We are the apple of his eye. And he is extra careful and watchful over us. You might even reverently kind of say, God is touchy about his children. He's, whatever touches us, touches him because we're precious to him. And like a mother eagle, she hovers over her young and then she watches as they begin to fly and she sees a bird of prey coming down to snatch one of her little eaglets. She'll swoop in and she'll spread her wings and she'll cover them with her feathers. That's how God comes to the defense of his people. And we need to remember this because our enemies are fierce. In verses 9 through 12, David is raising the, the terror alert. He's saying, it's urgent, God. I need your help. There's no time for delay. Because look at how violent and heartless and ruthless my enemies are. In verse 10, David literally says that, that their fat encloses their hearts. Their heart is like covered with fat so that they're unfeeling and insensitive to any compassion or mercy. And they speak so arrogantly, full of disdain and contempt. I've seen this in my pastoral care of God's people, what some of God's people go through in the face of enemies who speak words that are so vile, so vicious, who pursue and hunt down God's people relentlessly. It's, it's been happening recently in the, in, in the life of someone I care for deeply. And their intent is clear in verses 11 and 12. They will settle for nothing less than complete ruin. That's, that's the way God's enemies are. They're, they're, they're like a lion charging its prey. And David says in verse 11, they advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. And this battle against God's anointed king and the, the people of God's king, it's being carried out today against God's people around the world. You remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But because we're the apple of his eye, this is a battle God won't let us fight alone. He gives us the shield of faith. He hears us when we cry out to him with all kinds of prayer and petition. And as the lion roars and charges to devour us, we will find ourselves hidden under the shadow of his wing. God will protect us. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. 
after you have suffered for a little while. So when we're surrounded by heartless, ruthless adversaries who speak arrogantly and accusingly against us, we can, we can take confidence that God views us in Jesus as the apple of his eye and that Jesus bore the judgment our sins deserve. So even if the accuser or the enemy has a lot of dirt on us, which he does, none of it will stick. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're covered by him. And we can be confident that no scheme of hell, no power of man can pluck us from his hands. I remember way back in 1991, watching the confirmation hearings of Justice Clarence Thomas, seeing what he was going through. And he faced what some people call a tidal wave of lurid accusations and humiliation publicly. And he wrote an autobiography called My Grandfather's Child, where he describes how he found the strength to go through this. One of the things he said is, I had been reading Bible verses all summer. And as the confirmation process ground on, I spent even more time doing so. I knew that many good people were working tirelessly to help me get confirmed. But that knowledge no longer calmed my nerves or lifted my spirits. The more hopeless things appeared and the more vulnerable I felt, the more I turned to God's comforting embrace. And he said over time, his focus became primarily God-centered. He realized that the battle he was in was primarily spiritual, not political. And he started concentrating more and more on the inward reality of his spiritual life. And when he did that, he realized that through the years, he said, I had become too proud. And this is what stood out to me. It occurred to me for the first time that I had cherished my good name in the same way that a wealthy man cherishes his money. I remembered how Jesus had told the rich man to give away his fortune and come follow me. Perhaps I would have to renounce my pride to endure this trial. So he started concentrating on humbling himself and submitting to God's will. And, and as he did that, he experienced a growing peace. He said, I had faith that his transcendent purpose would sustain me to the end of it and beyond. He has never failed me, even in my darkest hours, even when I openly rejected him, his forgiving and sustaining grace has always been there. And we can know the same thing, whether it's human enemies or the enemy of our soul breathing down our necks, we can come to God and trust that his sustaining grace will ultimately protect us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Not for a moment will he do that. And finally, we can find freedom from the lust of self-vindication when we, when we remember that our God is going to make everything right in the end. He's going to deal with our enemies. He's going to bring us safely home to glory. And that's what motivates David's last request. In verses 13 through 15, a request for the defeat of the king's enemies. We need this because the accusations and the slander and the oppression of the enemies of God against God's people is relentless in this life. And some of these accusations take a toll and 
leave a mark. In our nation, no one's ever going to be able to speak the name of Clarence Thomas without someone else thinking Anita Hill. There's a stigma. There's a shadow that goes far beyond the reality sometimes of these accusations. And only God can finally and fully deal with our enemies in this world. Only God can vanquish the accuser of his children. Only God can vindicate our name. So we put our cause in God's hands. We put our confidence in his steadfast love. We cry out to him to deal with our enemies. That's what David does in verse 13. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. That's what distinguishes God's people from the people of this world. That's what we sang this morning, I think, in the song in Feast or in Fallow. We said, you're my shield, you're my portion. You're the one I'm looking to for ultimate joy and satisfaction. But for the people of this world, David says their portion is in this life. God showers good things on them, including the gift of family and children in verse 14. But they receive all these gifts from God, but they never glorify him or give him thanks. They treat these goods as if they are God's. And consequently, all the good they'll ever be able to expect is in this life. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul laments the, the, the situation, the tragedy of those whose portion is in this life. And he says this, For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. But we who belong to Jesus are different by the grace of God. We may be despised and rejected in this life, we may be falsely accused, unjustly treated, but our portion is not in this life. Paul goes on to say, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And by the grace of God, that's what King David is enabled to turn his gaze upon in verse 15. That's what he starts looking forward to. But I will see your face in righteousness. In your presence, I will be satisfied with your presence when I awake. After death, even, there, there's everlasting joy spread before me, like he, he prayed at the end of, of, of Psalm 16. You fill me with joy in your presence, and your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. I love what James Hamilton says, how he describes what David's talking about in verse 15. He's talking about the enjoyment of direct access into God's presence. When the dead are raised, 
This world is healed. The curse is gone. The serpent crushed. The gates of Eden opened. And God's children are embraced in his arms as he wipes away every tear. That's what we have to look forward to. Joy in the presence of God, seeing the face of God. The dead raised, the world healed, the curse gone, the serpent crushed, the gates of Eden opened, God's children embraced in his arms as he wipes away every tear. And the fulfillment of this hope is secure because we know that King Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and over every accusation that the evil one could bring against us. Our sin cannot separate us from his love. And, and nothing can take away from us this hope, this, this inheritance, this future glory that David is confident here in verse 15. You know, in this life, for believers, our portion is not in this world. Everything we experience, I just think of the waves of the lake on the sand of the beach and just what it's like to hear Lake Michigan as its waves roll on in the summer or biting into a juicy peach, Georgia peach, and it's dripping all over your face or holding a precious little pet that you love dearly and there's just affection there or the warmth of fellowship with loved ones you know, all the, the beautiful things, that the steak that you cook on the grill and it's perfect and every bite you just savor. All these things are just foreshadowings of what we're going to taste and enjoy and experience in the new creation when we behold God's face in righteousness. When we wake up and we're there in his presence that fills all things, it's, it's so worth waiting for. It's so worth living differently in this life. It's so worth saying, my portion is not in this life. So that's, that's how David ends this psalm. And how can you know if that's what you're going to see one minute after you die? How can you know one moment after you die that you're going to see God's face in righteousness, that when you awake, you're going to be satisfied with his presence well, you can know that. You can know that by, by saying, Lord Jesus, I want to stop living independently from you. I want to give up on the desperate pursuit of trying to find my portion in this life. I want to put my hope in you who can satisfy me with everlasting joy. And you can have the same confidence that David does. So what I'd like us to do is bow before the Lord now and just spend some time thinking through and offering our hearts, opening our hearts to him. Heavenly Father, as we bow in your presence, right now some people are going through a real battle. Maybe they're being spoken poorly of. Others are telling lies about them. I have a friend right now who's just being subjected to Vicious, malicious lies. It's so hard. Lord, we thank you that we can call on you to vindicate us. That we can look to you to protect us. 
that we can hope in you that you will ultimately deal with every enemy of our souls and satisfy us with everlasting glory in your presence. Lord, help us when other people annoy us or do things that we think are unfair or say things about us that hurt us. Lord, deliver us from this lust of always trying to vindicate ourselves and help us be more and more like Jesus who entrusted himself to you, the one who judges justly. Father, I pray for anyone who here today doesn't know that they will wake up in your presence on the other side of death. I pray, Lord, for anyone here whose portion is in this life and all they have to look forward to is what this life can offer. Father, turn people's hearts today toward Jesus. Turn us away from empty, vain things. And we turn to you, Lord Christ, who conquered death and defeated the devil and who sits at God's right hand and who's going to bring about a new creation and that we're going to be able to live in your presence. We thank you for the cross, for what you did there, Lord Jesus, to deal with the effects of sin and to silence the roar of the accuser. And we're so thankful for the resurrection that you're alive at God's right hand and we look forward to your return, Lord Jesus, when you're going to make all things new. You're going to wipe away every tear. You're going to satisfy us forever with good things in the presence of God. As we, your people, come and, and, and eat this bread and drink this cup, we thank you for all you've done for us, Lord Jesus, to secure a glorious future. And we put our hope and our trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.